Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Just wanted to remind folks, of course, that there's a a rather large archive of uh, Expanding Mind shows. Uh, A lot of them are on my website, technosis.com, as long with uh, posts, little chunks of text, lots, a huge archive of writings, um, information about upcoming events. Uh, And I wanted to talk a little bit about that as well. I'm starting to put together uh, events for High Weirdness, um, as well as the ongoing uh, Psychedelic Sangha experience. So the the next Psychedelic Sangha event for those of us, or those of you who are in uh, San Francisco, uh, is coming up on April 13th, the Saturday, and I might be doing an event down in Los Angeles with our guest today, Spiros Antonopoulos, who we will meet in just a moment, uh, sometime maybe later in, in April. Also, uh, at the end of the month on the East Coast, I'm going to be participating in uh, uh, two iterations of the same event, Profane Illuminations. This is uh, an event centered on Strange Attractor, which is one of the publishers of High Weirdness, uh, run by the wonderful, uh, remarkable, mercurial Mark Pilkington, uh, an old friend of mine. I've known him uh, almost 20 years now. Uh, and he's put together just an amazing press. Uh, they they, they p- publish wonderful books in what he likes to call unpopular culture or strange culture. It's a perfect place for high weirdness. And we're going to be doing event an event at NYU in uh, New York City, of course, on April 27th, uh, Saturday. And two days later on the Monday up in Cambridge, uh, there'll be an MIT Press event, uh, one of uh, the other publisher of the book. And we'll be uh, doing more stuff uh, up there, uh, some other guests who've been on the show are going to are going to be around. Peter Burbagall and and other folks. Um, it's really going to be a great a time. So if you're out there, uh, there will be more specific information very shortly on my events uh, in, uh, tab in technosis.com. I'll get to that in the next couple of days. You know, I, I move uh, slowly. I'm kind of a tortoise. You know, slow and steady wins the race style. You know, and so. The Patreon's not ready yet. Probably won't be ready next week. Maybe probably won't even be ready the week after that. But we're getting there. We're moving forward. Uh, so be prepared for more uh, more calls for uh, for attention coming my way. At this point, all I'm going to ask you to do is, if you haven't taken the opportunity to leave a leave a review of Expanding Mind wherever uh, you, you you get your podcasts, uh, please consider doing so. It really does seem to make a difference. And I want the numbers. I want more numbers, man. The number, the number greedy guys out in force. Uh, I don't really know actually how much numbers really make a difference because you talk to five awesome, brilliant, creative people, or you can talk to 500 like whatevers. I don't want to like insult people randomly, but it's really hard to know the meaning of, of these numbers, how people actually listen to things. They just download them, whatever. But it's always nice to uh, get numerical support. Well, enough of the uh, the intro part. Um, today, I'm really happy to have uh, my uh, old dear friend Spiros or Spiro on the uh, on the show. Uh, we've known each other for quite a long time. I think, uh, geez, uh, wow, I don't know, thirty years, twenty five years, something like that, um, and. Uh, He's been on the show before. The last time he was on, we were talking about uh, 
his uh, interesting an interesting brain event uh, that occurred uh, to him a number of years ago when we weren't really sure uh, what what Spiro was going to come back from this sort of uh, stroke slash not wasn't an aneurysm it was like a brain event so let's just call it a brain event uh, which was a fascinating conversation I think you can still dig it out uh, if not on my website I think Podbean has a has a longer uh, archive of my shows. Um, uh, but today we're going to be talking about yoga because among other things, Spiro is an awesome, uh, and quite devoted Ashtangi yogi, Ashtanga yogi, and he's been on the yoga path for uh, quite a long time. And so I thought it'd be good to, to kind of get in again, one of these, uh, themes that I like to come back to, which is, you know, the, the sort of, uh, countercultural context of a lot of practices that have since become more, uh, mainstream um, and really thinking about uh, what kind of uh, what's the what's the spirit involved and in, in how in practice how we practice and why we practice and um, this is particularly uh, key for Spiro who's moved into uh, a teacher role um, he's he's set up a studio with his uh, partner in um, Los Angeles called uh, the Los Angeles uh, Yoga Club. Uh, and, uh, they've been, they've been cranking out the Ashtanga over there. And so we're going to talk about yoga today, but you know, first let's talk about Spiro and where we came from. So Spiro, thanks for uh, joining me on Expanding Mind. Hi, Eric. Thank you. <laughs> it's my old friend. I think I yes. told the story the last time, but we, we met online uh, you know, this is back in the day, kids. I know some probably when you're younger and you're like, oh man, here they go again. But hey, this is our life. So what are you going to do? Right. It Maybe- was back in the day when Boing Boing was a magazine. Yes. back And then we were, we met on the internet uh, before the World Wide Web, which just seems like one of those important bifurcation points on the Fringeware Review listserv. And Fringeware Review was also a magazine, kind of like Boing Boing. What was the difference between them? What do you think? Um, Just two different people. It was back in the zine culture. So, you know, basically it was a neuropsychedelic... The idea of the internet and of electronic computer world had potential and possibilities. And I think there were both people that used that. Oh, yeah. And it, it had that sense of, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of like a, a kind of a midway build between the, the, the maturing zine culture of the 80s and the exploding uh, kind of bulletin board then onto alt groups, internet uh, um, listservs and such. And it was a really great place uh, to meet. It was it was fun because we knew each other for a while, just pure, purely virtually, until we met and started started hanging out. But when I knew you back then, you were like super freak. And you, when I, you know, when I first met you, you had all these like bones in your nose, and it was just full on. And you were living in in Taos, New Mexico. And if, for folks who don't know, Taos is north of Santa Fe, which is a beautiful area. It's one of the most beautiful parts of. Uh, of uh, of the United States and and one of the most mystical in my experience. I mean, just, it, there's something really magical and sp- even spooky about that place. Um, and it was at it was in this sort of at that time, you know, deeply counterculture environment that you first got into yoga. 
but you know, in a kind of interesting route. <laughs> so, what were you yeah. up to at that time that led you into at, the uh, yoga zone? At that point, um, I had come into contact with some uh, people that had left uh, New York City, a uh, teacher in the Crowley world, a Thelemic uh, teacher, whose te- his teacher was McMurtry, Grady McMurtry. And um, he, I don't know exactly why he and his partner left, um, but they left for Taos and started an organization, the uh, Initiates of the Flame. And I became involved. And basically what it had me do, what they had me do, what we were doing is meditating every day uh, and taking notes. Um, So every day I had to, amongst other things, uh, either chant uh, do breathing exercises or just sit. Yeah. And, uh, and that began the, began the journey. And actually, I didn't even realize that when I got to New York many moons later that um, I thought I had just left my uh, Crowley occult world behind. But as I return nowadays, looking back, all of Crowley's literature is filled with basic Ashtanga yoga, basic Patanjali and Shiva Samhita. Yeah, it, it, that's a really important point that if you know, if you if you do your esoteric history, you become aware of it. But it really has not leaked out uh, beyond that zone for, for the most part, is just how it's not even that, that it's so much that Crowley was in, in just that he was instrumental in bringing yogic practice and meditation practice, both from a kind of Patanjali orientation, as well as uh, Ther- Theravadan Buddhist meditation practices and cosmologies. It wasn't just that he helped bring them to the West, which he did. It's that if you go back now and you read his writings, then you see two things. One is that he actually grokked, either like grokked something really well in a way that still speaks to us now, or that the way that we still speak and approach these things is so is so very similar to his approach, but it's it's fresh. Uh, uh, a lot of writings from those years about practice and Buddhism and the Dharma and and you know tantra are are kind of you know from Westerners are kind of dry. They're a little like, what am I supposed to do with this? I, I, you're not really sure how good the scholarship is. You'd rather read a modern scholar. It's not really clear what they're doing. But wrote, Crowley really wrote as a was a practitioner, and he clearly exactly. had very deep experiences that also really enlivened his crazy magic. And if a lot of his like Western magic stuff, or his Thelema and the OTO and all the rituals, whatever, you know, that's pretty. It's kind of over the top. I think most of us, even people who are into magic, are like, whoa, you know, that's a bit, bit. That's a triple layer fudge cake of occult, you know, uh, <laughs> ritual and 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 imagination. But running through the whole thing is this current of something that's that's in a way kind of more basic and and just barreling along, which is the sense that there's his his whole practice was kind of enlivened by his yogic experiences. Now watch the mind, follow the breath, return to the breath. Um, Importance of posture, you know, the way important. of looking at like. What's the connection between a, a magical hand gesture or, or a, a you know a, a drawing a pentagram in the air and a mudra or even a physical posture like that kind of connection 
um, was 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 really was really rich and really and really ripe. So I always encourage people to take a look at at Crowley's texts on on yoga in particular um, because they add a sort of fire to uh, what is often you know a little bland in terms of how Western yoga and Western meditation is presented, particularly these days. Book four. Book I'm four. just returning to it. Book four is amazing. Uh, and it's clarity of focus in, uh, in if you want to understand uh, Patanjali Ashtanga Yoga, he covers Ashtanga Yoga quite clearly. I mean, he also goes back to it years later in lectures. But this he's basically saying, you know, focusing the mind and uh, basically the sense organs. Where are the sense organs going? Who's watching? He's asking these questions and he's applying them gesturally, but a gesture is asana. The gesture but, is asana. Now, when you first started to practice Ashtanga, uh, well, like what was it about, you know, you, you came, you had this desire, you wanted to practice more yoga. What was it about Ashtanga in particular at a time when there's many different postural yoga systems, different names, different lineages? What Did you just stumble into it or what, what called you about that? The main thing was that there wasn't a uh, an instructor in front that was performing, not just performing, but also putting weird ideas uh, in my head. I felt a vulnerable uh, when I would go to yoga classes in the '90s, and I felt um, there wasn't any, there wasn't that much intellectual rigor when I was sensitive and I, in my head at that time. I just felt like I actually appreciated the silence. But it's also about self-practice and that's something that people involved with Thelema and any occult traditions or most meditational traditions will know that you basically practice alone, that there's something that's uh, it's just about your practice. So all those things led me to uh, Ashtanga Yoga Mysore rooms where while you're with other people, there's nobody telling you exactly what to do. You're not fo- all following on the same beat. Yeah. So then you you work at your own pace through a set series of postures. I I practiced some uh, Ashtanga when I was first starting out doing doing yoga uh, regularly, but uh, I just I couldn't quite back it. <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's, it's definitely both. for a certain. It's a certain it calls for certain people because it's not just about the self practice, which I was really attracted to. But there's also it seems like it, it it calls forth, or I would even say not demands, but but really it thrives in response to your own disciplined devotion. You know, and particularly a kind of daily or near daily commitment to that daily, same near practice. Daily. Yeah. Yep. Daily and near daily, but also a sort of uh, people that are really into um, that sort of sort of uh, daily habit, and that um, their bodies can adapt to it quickly. I mean, nowadays, I think, uh, or just with age and with a long time set at a practice, um, we ease up. I think uh, on what we expect a pose to look like or a body to do. But uh, early on, and even in the 90s, uh, people were more rigorous on pushing ourselves. Oh, and yeah. I think nowadays, I think we're more just happy to be doing something 
to be using the body and realize that all bodies are totally different. Yeah, it's it's true. Way. I think that I mean that's noticeable even even practicing outside of the context of Ashtanga. I remember the first yoga classes I went to at, at Jiva Mukti in New York City in the '90s, the mid '90s. They were scary. Like it was probably because I was young and insecure, and you know, like you're so self conscious and whatever. And you know, that lasted for years doing yoga practice. But I mean, I I would like went in there like kind of quaking, like uh, you know, not just because the poses might be challenging. And I remember some really challenging poses for me anyway. Um, but just the whole energy was like, we're not screwing around. This isn't to make you feel better necessarily. I mean, it's like a practice, and we're we're gonna push it, and we're gonna see where we go, and. And we'll support you, but it's not, you know, there's no sense of, of kind of coddling. There wasn't any kind of, uh, you know, fuzzy blanket around the thing. And even even later on when I started practicing locally uh, with the studio that had a lot of different kinds of teachers who were doing, you know, what we, whatever, vinyasa, power yoga, different things that were influenced by Ashtanga, but other things, and a little, you know, a little bit of, um, of, uh, you know, other, just like a, a, a mix of practices. Um, there was still more of this kind of intensity and a sort of pushing, like let's, we're all here together and we're pushing and, and you would just get in an ordinary class, more difficult poses, poses that, and mm -hmm. I go to the same studio. So it's kind of like watching it change over the years. Isn't just about this studio. It's about the whole world of yoga and it has gotten less intense and it has gotten, I think, a little bit less uh, pushing forward. And, and for some good reasons, people get hurt. Different kind of mm -hmm. people come in, uh, older people come, you know, whatever. Like, I don't need to do that stuff that much. I, it's okay that I haven't achieved some of these really wild poses that at some point I thought I, I, was, I was getting close to or some of them I did achieve and now I can't do anymore. Like you say, you get older, it doesn't really matter as much. But it, there's also something about the vibe there's something about that the, the mm -hmm. yoga vibe even back then had you know it's it was still just again you know, it's, it's it's not the right word to say oh it was just more countercultural it was just it had i don't know it had it had a, a liveliness that's different than now i mean the mysore rooms especially uh even still to some degree but we can talk about the differences but then especially it was during our you know our time of um the the web was still just getting going. Um, information was still word of mouth. You still heard about things or you saw a piece in a, in a newspaper or magazine and you snuffed it out. You, sniffed, you found the place. And then, you know, in New York, whether it was Jiva Mukti in the 90s or actually even Eddie, they're both, I mean, it's all um, these rooms where you'd find that weren't super well labeled you'd go in and it would be dark and there's a whole room full of people just um, sweating and it smells weird and it's crowded and there's something strange and, and kind of magical about it. Like you would start to go and you'd be there every day and there's tons of people you recognize. You think, oh gosh, is that someone I recognize from the movies or something? Or is that, you know, it's hard to tell and you don't know anybody's name and everybody's sort of struggling and grunting and there's something kind of crazy about that over time you feel well, an intimacy with people that you don't even know really or you kind of know you know the some quality of them that other people don't even know that know their name 
Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an interesting feeling that kind of bonding you get with people when you're when you're mutually going through difficulty, even without communicating about it or even without eye contact, there's still kind of a sense of that. And, you know, obviously that can happen in any kind of class where people are, are pushing themselves and, you know, CrossFit or whatever you get. That's part of what I think gets people uh, enthusiastic about it. But what was interesting, I think, in those times is that even though it wasn't exactly clear what was, quote unquote, spiritual about this, it, mm-hmm. it it was it was asking more. I mean, it had a, a if you will a, a psychedelic tinge. There was something strange about it or uh, unknown. There was still an element of kind of you know of uh, of mystery to it. But but I, I, I what you mentioned Eddie and I wanted you to talk a little bit about how again how interesting that particular teacher was Eddie Stern uh, and the 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 New York. Um, yoga club that he ran and and you know his whatever he's, he's now he's morphed into you know uh, you know a kind of yoga celebrity teacher writer figure you know friend of Deepak Chopra uh, but again like the scene he had at the time was kind of punk rock and 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 what what, what how did you stumble into him he was very punk rock. I was practicing when I first got to New York, which was two thousand and one. And it was before the towers fell. And I started at, um, I had no money. Uh, I went to Jiva Mukti because they took a credit card and I could chalk up my credit card. And um, I soon just felt like I needed something else um, for various reasons. I uh, grew, uh, yeah, I just didn't like the Jiva Mukti vibed at that time. So I um, started looking around and I heard about Eddie's, but there was no sign on the door. Um, it took me days of walking past the door that is his place, was his place on Broom and Crosby. Um, it took me days to walk up the stairs and actually go in and talk to somebody. And um, yeah, the punk rock aspect is was very much, he was a punk rock kid in New York. And he started going to India, you know, in his teens at that time and um and david and sharon took him under his wing up under their wings they were a little bit older and going to india and trying to learn something about um yoga and find teachers and um a whole thing unfolded from there but um well what was the element of how would you characterize the element of the of the spiritual, the sacred? Since you know you 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 were already open to that vibe, you were interested in these esoteric paths. You were interested in magic and in ritual and practice and psychedelic experience as a as another vehicle or dom- dimension of of the search. Um, and and you know stumbling into this this practice again, it, it's it's always interesting how yoga both is and is not sacred in the West. It, it's both right. a, a, a material, calisthenic, health and, and good butt oriented form of consumerism. And at the same time, and in all sorts of different mixtures, this sort of transmutation of, uh, you know, an Eastern practice with its own sort of occult elements actually that that come in at various points with the chakra system and other kinds of esoteric ideas and it's really this amazing mix and and how did that how was that mix presented or how did or not even so much presented but how did you open up to that mix in the context of uh of studying with eddie 
Well, uh, it happened in, in, in Taos. I had a friend, uh, Sonia, um, who was teaching Ashtanga yoga sometimes. And I got a piece of paper that had all the poses on it. And I started doing it basically when I had a broken heart. I had broken up with somebody and I was kind of going kooky. And I needed something that sort of um, stabilized me. And there was, I just made a commitment. I just had, everything was down and out. And I had to make a commitment that I would, regardless of what I would do the rest of the day, I would go through this whole sequence. And, you know, I'd be dedicated to this uh, yoga mat, which became my sort of prayer uh, rug. And regardless of what else I would do anywhere else, I would just stick with it. And um, that was my daily practice. And it took me two hours when I first started to do all the uh, primary series. And that's not the proper way of learning, uh, but it was what I did. I just started practicing every day. And it was a time when I couldn't make a phone call. I couldn't do anything else. I had to actually focus. And I, and I learned that I actually um, had a wily mind that um, would teach me how to, you know, I would cut corners, I would do all these things. And eventually it helped me rinse a lot of that out and actually do things more and more uh, rhythmically uh, by the book, kind of, but more just within the rhythm of the context without actually cutting corners for me or what I thought of was me, but it was miss me being lazy. So you learn these, I learned these qualities about myself within the context of a yoga mat um, it was sort of a little bit like staring at a wall, but um, in this case, it had a rhythm. And that rhythm was important when you breathe, when you uh, step this way or that way. And uh, I learned a lot about myself and see what I project. And I realized that what I was projecting into the world at large was also what I was projecting in my yoga. And actually, that was, that was a huge revelation. Well, it also brings up something that you and I talk about a lot, which is just the just the the quality of practice. And it, you know, the term it means a lot of different things. And we usually think about practice when you're practicing something, like you're practicing piano, or you're practicing yoga, or you're you know you're practicing to, to language or whatever. But there's something about practice as itself, and particularly in the sense of of repetition isn't quite the right word, but but a, a kind of ritual devotion to it or, and, and definitely going through all of the tricks that you say that the mind erects to not do the thing because we're, mm-hmm. we're very resistant in a lot of ways. And even if the thing you're practicing maybe has nothing to do with spirituality, it's not really about spiritual or not spiritual, it's that there's some kind of energy that practice brings into whatever dimension of life you're directing it towards that, that charges it. And when that practice does have a spiritual dimension or a psych- at least a psychological dimension where you're, you're intimately with yourself or you're stretching, uh, you're, you're, you're opening up energies in your body, you're opening up feelings you haven't had before, um, it's incredibly uh, powerful. I mean, I've never been quite as, as rigorous about it uh, as you have. And, you know, here's, here's actually kind of something interesting. When you describe yourself in, in Taos, particularly before you even had like a real teacher, you weren't, it's not like you were going into a yoga studio every day to do this practice. There was some part of you that knew that that was going to be a lifeline, that, that 
rigorous rhythm was going to be a lifeline at a point where your life was very scattered. I mean, you were all over the place. You were like, had wild experiences and crazy people and moving around. And, you know, you were very much a a kind of fringe freak character in terms of your lifestyle. And and in terms of like the, you know, psychedelics, I had no idea that ayahuasca would be like a huge thing in culture years later. That's right. You were doing, I mean, you know, that's another whole story we could have is you, you know, you were, <laughs> you were one of the lab rats in Rick Strassman's uh, DMT experiments. So you were getting intravenous DMT and you were doing that because you were already familiar uh, with ayahuasca at a point when very few people uh, were, were exploring those, those realms, uh, you know, in, 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 in the United States for sure. And even, even you know, where there wasn't a, a kind of tourism industry, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was really a different time. Um, but I, where do you think that that instinct about the rhythm of practice came from in your life? Cause it came, I mean, I basically opened up to it out of desperation out of just, you know, not really having another choice because I was so destabilized. I was, um, you know, I, I mostly, in order to be in my body, I thought that maybe just having sex all the time would be great, but that was unreliable at best (laughs) or just a fantasy or both. But, um, I just felt suddenly this was something that I could do and it embodied and was a commitment to myself, which, um, which was a big deal actually for me in my life. Actually thinking about it now helps me uh, remember this, that it was not a simple task to live, to be a psychedelic person in the nineties in a sense and try to figure out what am I going to do with my life? How do I make money? You know, what, um, you know, websites. Um, so those type of things became more stabilized with, uh, with a daily practice. Yeah, I mean, and it's it it just seems like such an important key, you know, when people are seeking and they're trying to find what's the best practice, what's the thing to do, what's who who's the teachers or teaching, you know, what's the method and da da da, <clears throat> and really a lot of it is just in your own in your own hands in terms of your attitude towards practice. And I, I got I feel compelled to as someone who was a close observer of Ashtanga and who submitted myself at a couple of different points to the sequence. Mm-hmm. And at some point I always got uh, injured. And so I just decided in the end that the, the Ashtanga was was not for me. I'm sure it was not Ashtanga's fault. Um, <laughs> but I spent a lot of time w- around people who were who were doing this. And while there were people who I really admired their devotion, it was also really clear that there was like a significant percentage of the Ashtanga people were like type A overachievers because it really fed a certain kind of like, you know, like every day, you know, like these, you could see these like guys who would like do it every morning and then they would go to work and like, you know, whatever, do cutthroat, you know, work or whatever. I mean, there was this, yeah. this kind of intensity about it, which has always been interesting with with you because you you don't have that quality that you're not a type a person like that you are not a you're not an overachiever you're not a, you're not proving anything to daddy you know at all you never yeah. have you, in fact the opposite and yet you found a way through the 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 rich not even rich rituals not even the right word just the repetition the devotion the commitment to that practice has has been this through line through your life since then and, and such a positive one. No, it was a calling. It was definitely something I felt 
comfortable with on some weird level. And it, and it brings me back to New York with Eddie's because Eddie's had a lot of those people, a lot of people that were really high up in, in various uh, corporations and all this stuff. And um, it allowed me to have a window into other worlds and other people. Um, a lot of people who I would have never met. And it, it, on the yoga floor, we're all sort of equals. I mean, there's people that are this or that, but in the end, we're all finding our limits and we're all working with it. We're all breathing. We're all sweating. We're all dealing with what our, our the rest of the life outside um, affects. And we come to a yoga mat and we, you know, do our best. And so suddenly it new york in new york city i met tons of people that i would have never met anywhere else and it took a time of uh actually seeing a humanity across the whole thing whereas before i may have uh judged or um, framed people as this type of person or that type of person part of that was due to being a chaiwala at that time yeah i was going to ask you about that i mean you had a very specific role uh, in that place that uh, always intrigued me, like that you managed to move to New York, broke, and basically craft of the life of a monk. You lived this like a monk, like you were a Chai Walla monk yogi in New York City, you know, at this precious time in the, in the transformation it's of true. the city. Just, just, I would ride my bicycle to, I mean, it was also a temple. I must say that, that Patabi Joyce was in town in 2001 when the towers fell. And that's when I decided to teach or to, uh, to serve tea was basically when, uh, when the towers fell and everybody was in town, I was like, who's making the chai for a gathering that uh, Eddie put together? And he's like, you make chai? And I said, yeah, I make chai. And I hadn't made chai before. Um, but then he asked, then I made a, you know, 10 gallons with an old friend who has made chai. And Eddie was like, why don't you make this uh, every day at my place? And I was like, sure. So that began uh, a, uh, a daily practice of riding my bicycle to to Eddie's and to the Ganesha temple at like three in the morning, it would still be the night before for most of the people that were out at bars, making out on the streets. And for me, it was the next day I was going to um, put the water on and practice yoga before people got there at six. Yeah. And you had great, you had a, a great chai too, man. I mean, it's really tasty stuff. But what I loved about that whole role you had is that you provided something I mean, Eddie's was was an unusual space in a, in a number of ways. One is that it really was a temple, like a real temple, where there's like a, a murti, a statue that needs devotion. And if you're going to have a murti around, you it's like another one of those commitment things. You got to get, you got to, you know, treat it well every day. So every it, day. Th- there's a liveliness to that place. And e- even though you could go there and not really be that aware of it, I mean, you'd see the temple of, Gane- you know, the statue of Ganesha or the, the, the Murti of G- Ganesha or whatever. And you, but you, you wouldn't, you know, it's like just, well, maybe it's decor, who knows, you know, like a lot of yoga studios, they just have it as decor. Um, but it wasn't, it was actually alive, but it was so always interesting the way that Eddie both presented that, but was also kind of down, you know, it was, it was sort of uh, low key in a way about that aspect. It was, it was more 
everyday religion rather than like, you know, oh my God, this is this great temple and holy place where you go and you can practice. That's always the, the impression that I had. And then you, uh, you know, pr- providing the chai, it was like, it created that, that little social nub of a kind of the conversational quality that can grow up, particularly around tea. I mean, it can happen around coffee too, but in my opinion, mm-hmm. tea, has, tea produces a slightly different, um, a slightly mellower kind of interaction, although also enthusiastic. And it, it kind of filled in something that's just missing from a lot of yoga, which is that you feel these connections with people in the room. There's a sense of doing something together or being alone together in this powerful way and that there's a, a kind of transformative energy that's opened up. But the kind of generic, like after the class, people sort of chatting and it's just, eh, you know, it's just like, it's not that interesting. So a lot of people just bail. And so you kind of like, it's almost like a wasted opportunity. And there you were able to kind of hold space for a lot of people who are pretty, pretty serious practitioners. And it's, it, it made a w- amazing weave. It's true. I mean, the other thing was that it was also, uh, it was called the Sri Ganesha Tea and Bookstall. And so a lot of the source texts that uh, influenced Eddie and uh, he would sell at the tea stall, at the bookstall, and I would actually read them after I get the chai going. There'd be like a window of, of a half hour, 45 minutes of actually just reading uh, root texts from the Bhagavad Gita to the uh, Garanda Samhita to the Shiva Samhita. Um, all the yoga sutras and various versions and commentaries. And um, that actually helped me to uh, postulate and integrate other Indian ideas to the best of my abilities. Um, And also allow a topic of conversation for the day um, when people came in and I had a big bell. And if it just got too cacophonous, I would just ring the bell and everybody would quiet down. It was pretty funny. But it was also performance art. I was I was I was at a bar, you know. I was basically a bartender, and um, people sometimes would uh, use the chai shop at the end after practice as a sort of motivation for getting people into practice. And it was a gathering place where people actually got to learn each other's names and what people do, or at least you know what they look like in clothes. Yeah. So you know, I I I, I want to kind of move uh, move forward to the to the now, um, looking at the clock, and uh, I uh, I think it's important to say you know you 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 spent a lot of time in, in Mysore in India, and you know you did the whole thing. You got your your certification. You're like a bona fide Ashtanga teacher, and but the whole world is you know changed. Uh, yoga's changed. Ashtanga's changed. Patabi Joyce, uh, you know, died years ago, and and his son took over, and the character of the organization has changed. But again, everything is kind of um, a bit different. And one of the things that I, I think is sort of interesting about your story right now, as you as you've gone into like choosing to be a teacher and starting a studio and and facing the challenges of you know being a business person in Los Angeles and you know, in this kind of different environment that we're in is that you, you come in with like all this good stuff. I mean, you you got the goods, you got that juice and you're like your soul, man, you know, you got that earthiness and, you know, uh, uh, it's just the kind of teacher I would want if I was like looking for like a serious, you know, yoga commitment. And yet that's your story and, you know, you're over here and then there's like the world of like making a business work. 
Um, and how does that work? You know, how, how does that, how does that happen now? How, what, what happens to, uh, to what's happened to yoga now and how you see, um, things changing. So I just would wow. love to hear a little bit about your, uh, you know, both your, your satisfactions and your challenges in terms of setting up a, a yoga studio these days, that's still true to these, this spirit that we've been talking about, these underground roots, the, the esoteric, the, the mystical, the, 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 the student, the studied, but also the, the really heartfelt and devotional. I mean, uh, Erica and I came back from uh, India with uh, ideas of opening a place in Los Angeles. And I had been uh, going back and forth, uh, spending uh, three months, six months here and there in Los Angeles, but I hadn't really uh, fully made a dent in the community besides a couple old friends. Um, so it took a year of looking around for a place and a lot's changed in Los Angeles, even in that time in over six years at this point, uh, it came from a, you know, six years ago, it was still possible to find little pockets of places and, uh, little, um, apartments or, um, a little bit of a warehouse somewhere that doesn't cost a lot of money that you don't need a business plan or an idea. It doesn't have to be the next big thing. It just is a space that you're renting. Um, but that space, that idea sort of changed or maybe just evaporated in the time that uh, we were looking. So it took a long time to find a place in, uh, in Los Angeles. And that was one thing. Um, you know, Sharat also is a different type of teacher than uh, Padabi Joyce. Um, lots of it is for the better um, in that uh, he's younger. Um, he's, uh, he's a great teacher. I mean, when Padabi Joyce was the main uh, instructor, um, Sharat always was really sweet to me and uh, very helpful. I got a lot more one-on-one -on -one heartfelt um, interactions with Sharat because uh, Patabi Joyce was the big guy and he was running around and everybody wanted something from him and Sharat was just helping out. So I really enjoyed that. And uh, that always uh, sits with me the whole time. But he also has a um, very much more systematic approach, whereas uh, Patabi Joyce was a lot more uh, Wiley. He had a research institute, whereas uh, Sharat's place is more devotion to his grandfather. And um, and now it becomes more, more and more particular, whereas before it was a lot more loose. There was a lot more, um, a lot more open to interpretation, uh, at least from the sub, from the perspective of uh, a semi psychedelic person from uh, America. Yeah. And I, well, I think that was a lot of the people that actually popularized, uh, Ashtanga yoga. Absolutely. I mean, but that also makes me think of a, a, another kind of question about as you, you know, as you, you, you communicate about the existence of your studio, you, in a way you have to like, you know, create what we can't, can only call a brand or certain vibe. It, you notice it in your mailings, in the decor and the, uh, in the logo, you know, that's something that one does. It, it, but it also seems to me that we're at a point where there's just so much media, there's so much it's things grabbing people's attention, there's so much branding, there's so much marketing, there's so much 
density and intensity to that flow that it's also hard to have that quality of ambiguity, of mystery, of wiliness in your presentation of what you're doing. It's almost like in order to play that game, you have to get more like concrete and literal in order to like knock people over the head saying, hey, this thing's here. But if it's too sort of, you know, ambiguous and crepuscular and, and, and ambi- you know, ambivalent and who knows what it is or whatever, it's like that's not going to work because that's not... That's not the world we're in, uh, yeah, exactly. Both for um, looking for a place and also for teaching. I mean, in looking for a place, we people, if you don't fit into a box, um, like you're like a um, coffee place that it's going to be on the corner with a hot uh, restaurant, then the investors in the building can flip it in seven years. Um, people weren't that interested. They'd say, they thought yoga, and that's, that leads me to the second thing is everyone has an idea of what yoga is now. Um, so it's less mystique around it and more pragmatics. Everyone, oh yeah, I know what that is. And it involves going to a uh, neighborhood yoga practice and having somebody give me a workout. And while that's totally true, and that's uh, enough for a lot of people, that's not, uh, that loses some of the mystique. And there's a lot more people involved in, uh, you know, there's a lot more yoga schools in general all across the world, all across the country. So there's um, partially because in order to keep a yoga school or yoga studio afloat, um, just having the people come in and pay something doesn't cover the rent. So suddenly people have to um, give teachers trainings. And so people rush uh, teachers through at a very rapid pace in order to quote unquote deepen your practice, which is totally cool and totally fine. And there's a lot of great information. Um, But it's a little bit different than what I went through with Eddie, for example, which was all my friends around me were teaching yoga and we were at the same sort of level in yoga at the time in terms of uh, where we were practicing in the sequences as if that's exactly the same, but that's what was going on. And so other people were making money and doing that. And Eddie would always tell me, no, no, you just practice. Don't do, don't teach, don't teach. And so uh, it would be very frustrating so there's this uh, difference between how yoga is, you know, nowadays you start doing some yoga, you like it, you do a teacher training and you're a teacher. And yeah. uh, so let's change the whole uh, landscape, both from what a teacher is and what the teachers think yoga is or have to offer. And also um, the barrier of what, uh, people, the community thinks of as what yoga is. And part of it, part of being a yoga teacher in Los Angeles involves also um, people dealing with um, people's, I mean, all of our, all of us, we have ideas about the way the world is. And it's not until um, sometimes that is broken down and uh, dissolved a bit or loosened um, can we actually see different qualities in what we thought was true? 
Well, I think you just put your put your finger on something really key about the whole way that all, all a lot of practices and spiritual traditions are being transformed now from psychedelics to meditation to yoga to the occult, even like all of these things. You know, maybe I think you know Christian mysticism maybe has a different experience. That's 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 maybe you know it's not not across the board, but a lot of the things that we came from, and one of them is this kind of sense of of a sort of literalism or a kind of knowingness, and in part that represents a pragmatism that you mentioned before, which in some ways is really positive. It's like, it's like, show me the beef. It's like how, yeah, great. I could have a lot of, you know, mystical vibes and and feel like I'm kind of, you know, t- tuning into ancient secrets, but like, what, what, how am I actually going to change? What are, th- what are things that are really going to, really going to happen? So in a way that pragmatism um, is healthy, but the pragmatism is also bound up with the whole commercialization, meaning not just the commercialization of the practices themselves and the books and then the people, you know, starting their careers too young and being really pushy and the whole entrepreneurial dimension and the kind of crassness of so much, but also the way in which it just, it makes it easier for these practices to fit into a kind of standard, unquestioning, go get uh glossy uh, uh, you, you know, consumer capitalist ego, you know, and it's something we've talked about on the show a lot about how these things have become more and more bound up with, with the nature of capitalism to the point where there's some people who just don't want to hear anything about it. Like, don't want it. I don't want to hear about yoga. I don't want to hear about meditation. I don't want to hear about the Buddha. All of that stuff is a kind of palliative. These are, this is a more radical position. It's not mine exactly, but I appreciate it. It's this kind of a, a palliative to get people to go back into the market and become even more aggressive and withstand the, the stresses and the pressures of our, of our existence. And we've talked about this, you know, a lot in our in our lives in our private conversations, but I think it's actually a good thing to ray to bring up because it forces folks like us who are still really invested in these practices to be clearer about what they provide, what they can open up, how they can help change. Dare I use the word transformation in a yes. way that uh, isn't just about you know, getting yourself to not be so freaked out that you're able to just go live in the insane culture that we have. I mean, that's part of it. But for you, when you're thinking about what's really key for people, uh, what do you think about? Well, I mean, that's one of the great things about having uh, a practice that's uh, rote. I mean, Acum inhale. That's where it all starts. So we basically, if we get people to a mat, mat doing that, that's um, that shows already a devotion to trying. Um, but getting to that is actually some of the challenge. I mean, both in our place in downtown Los Angeles, um, but also you know in a world where inst- where most of the people in Mysore get jobs via their Instagrams of them in fancy poses in front of an ancient temple or uh, so there's an idea both of of what yoga is and what uh, the knowledge transmitted should look like um, so I mean I think the main thing is uh, that I would say is that people talk to people find out you meet teachers meet the people that you are going to interact with and practice with and see if those people actually um, have something that you feel 
um, you want a little bit of, or you want a part of. Um, it doesn't have to be something that they own per se, but it's an aura that's around them that you want to be part of that community and you want to be part of a different um, vibe. Then that's what I would say is more important than a style or um, whether it's uh, mindful meditation or stronger yoga. Um, it's really about people and about um, a way of practicing or, or, um, stabilizing some semblance of change well that that issue of of stabilization and, and relaxation i mean when we say relax we everybody thinks of like okay we know what stress is like so let's de-stress and there's there's a huge or there's such a range of forms of relaxation you know from whatever the the mild relaxation that provided by a glass of beer to uh, you know, very concentrated, like cognitive behavioral therapy, like, oh, I'm, I'm having a, a stress out here. I'm going to do this process or this method here. But there's a, a, there are deeper qualities of relaxation and stable, particularly stabilization that happen inside these practices that aren't just about managing stress, uh, that are, it's almost like, to my mind, like, um, allowing, nurturing, creating a space for a kind of steadiness to emerge at a very intimate part of your own experience, uh, uh, almost behind your normal self, your everyday self. It's, it's almost what looks through your eyes that starts to wake up a little bit. And, and that it has a lot of play. There's a lot of places that can go that are beyond just managing Stress, and one of my con my concerns is that as the pragmatism is emphasized, as the superficiality of how it looks or whatever is is circulated, that the the potential for those kinds of transformations that are subtler, they maybe take longer time, they require more humility, uh, at, at least parts of the time. That it just it's we're kind of crowding out the the room for that kind of thing uh, to grow. There's a, I mean, essentially we're doing uh, yoga for a number of reasons, um, stabilization of the mind, but uh, that involves a deep amount of uh, relaxation and acceptance of how things actually are, um, as opposed to what we're supposed to be doing or what we have to do or um, what we think is the ideal thing. Um, and it takes a lot. Sometimes we have to peel those out of our gripping hands, those ideas. And so it's important to, to um, find some way of walking away from the constant notifications on our phones and computers and actually um, be with uh, something in a simple way. I mean... I think, and we haven't really talked about too much about the psychedelic sanghas. Um, and there's a, there's a correlation between um, the way Patanjali looks at, uh, at perception and the way that the uh, 50s and 60s uh, psychedelic pioneers um, looked at what is mind manifesting. And there's a lot of correlations that are very interesting. But at its root is a sense of relaxation to um, the perceiver, to us seeing. 
um, which correlates a bit to me on a yoga mat, to me versus on the outside world, but also whatever arises during a, uh, a micro dose or a major uh, psychedelic experience, um, and yep. how that how that is integrated into the rest of our lives, rather than just a rupture or a schizo, is um, is actually takes work. Yeah, it takes a lot of work, and and we just have a, a minute or two left here, and and the one that the the element that comes through to me from what you've been talking about is just the ability to accept things as they are, not meaning accept that, well, this is just the way things are, but to be very honest, very yeah. honest about what is actually happening, even if that's terrifying, even if it's anxiety producing. And that honesty itself becomes uh, a kind of cooling, uh, even in a kind of ambrosia that it lets you be with something, not run away from it. And that honesty itself seems to take you into those deeper zones of stabilization. Yeah, there's a subjective quality to that uh, as things are when I was discussing, which has to do with just accepting uh, that a sense of acceptance and awareness uh, in concert, regardless of the qualities of those things. Well, you know, I'm afraid we're going to have to end it there. I want to say that uh, Spiro and I will be doing psychedelic songas together sometimes in, in Los Angeles. And you can find out more on, on uh, my website, technosis.com, and his own zone, Los Angeles Yoga Club, uh, org. Um, so check out there or, or through the connections from there. You'll, you'll find it one way or the other. Uh, uh, anything else there, Spiro? No, just uh, keep open. And, uh, you know, keep, uh, keep the mind uh, subtle, keep the mind supple. Or as we like to say here, keep your minds open. <laughs> Till next week. <laughs>